Let's take our Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 17 this morning. Acts chapter 17. If you didn't bring your Bible, it'll be up on the screen here. But um, just going to read verses 1 through 9 this morning as we begin. The Bible says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them in three Sabbath days, reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few, but the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason. And, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down have come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. They troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, the book of James tells us that we need to look into the perfect law of liberty, but that we need to continue therein. In other words, we need to obey and do what it says. If we'll do that, you say we'll be blessed in our deed. Lord, unfortunately, there are many who instead of obeying your word, look at your word like a man who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like and goes away and forgets what a mess he is. Lord, we come to you this morning acknowledging that we are a mess. We need your help today. This week has been full. The burdens of life are heavy. Lord, we've come to you now. We've worshipped you in song. And now we need to worship you as we respond to your truth. Give me grace as I preach it today that these would not just be more words, another sermon, but this would be a message that would challenge our hearts today as we hear from you. Move in our midst today through your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, serving God can be discouraging. Doing right is not always easy. It's hard to forgive sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to be patient. It's hard to walk by faith. And yet these are all things in Scripture that we are supposed to do. We just sang about it. We can't do these things without God's grace. 
God giving us strength to be able to walk, to be able to serve, to be able to do what He wants us to do. We don't gain favor with God by doing more stuff. We gain favor with God as we just walk with Him because God has already shown His favor to us. He just wants us to be with Him. It's not a matter of earning greater favor with Him rather than just being with Him and spending time with Him and growing to be like Him. This past week, I had the opportunity to get together with some of our staff and our team and celebrate some of the things that the Lord has done over the last year. I'm thankful for all that God has done. Thankful for how God has protected us, how God has provided for us. We were remembering how at the beginning of 2021, a large percentage of our church, one by one, came down with COVID. Many were very sick, but God has allowed us to continue on. We talked about some of the new babies that have been born in our church family this year, and we're thankful for the new babies that have been born. Now they're here with us, and they're growing, and it's just, that's another person that's here and almost don't even think about it. We were talking about even just a couple of weeks ago at the men's camp out, Dave Griffin was sharing how it's been a year since the Lord provided a new job for him. Now we were praising the Lord that God provides in that way. We, we serve a good God who's faithful even in difficult situations. And if we were to go back a year ago in our own lives, we probably couldn't picture exactly where we would be today in the same way that today we can't fully understand where we'll be a year from now. We think we know, we have plans, we have a calendar, we have intentions, we have desires, we have hopes, we have dreams, but we don't know what tomorrow holds. I'm thankful as believers, we know who holds tomorrow. We know who is in charge of it all. One thing is certain, life is hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. We have people in our church who are going through health challenges, through financial challenges, relationship challenges. We talk about all the time and effort that people are putting in to serve, whether it's working in the nursery or preparing music or cleaning the facility or, as happened this week, putting in some new lights and fixing some things up that are always in need of being fixed up. As I step back and walk through, as I did yesterday, and just rejoice in the progress that has been made. A few of you remember what this building looked like four years ago. It still has a long way to go. But God is blessed. God has provided. The paint is not peeling off the wall anymore. The carpet is not frayed and coming up. The pews don't feel like seesaws anymore. It used to be if you sat on one end and somebody bigger than you sat on the other end, you would be up in the air for most of the service. And if they got up quick, then you would come crashing down. You don't believe me, but those of you who are here know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not exaggerating at all. I wish I was. We've seen God bless and God bring people to Himself. We've seen people trust in Christ and people 
be baptized. We're looking forward to baptizing some more even next Sunday. But as we head out into the future, as we continue to walk step by step, we recognize that we live in a world that's against the work of Christ. In the passage that I read in Acts 17, Paul and Silas and these other believers in Thessalonica were accused of turning the world upside down. I would say they were trying to turn the world right side up. The problem is we live in a world that is upside down. And if trying to point people to Christ is, it gets us accused of turning the world upside down, then so be it. This world needs to be turned upside down then because it's the wrong way up. As we look at this passage, we see Paul and his team, they've just left Philippi. Remember last week, they got thrown in prison for casting a demon out of a little girl who's being taken advantage of by a couple of men. They're abusing her for her demonic powers. Paul and Silas cast the demon out, and they get thrown in prison for casting the demon out. This world is upside down. They get beaten, they're bruised, they're hurt, and then they're finally let go quickly. Get out of town. Don't stay here anymore. And that's how they travel on to Thessalonica. Can you imagine the pain they must have been in? They'd just been beaten up by people who beat up people for a living. And now they're kicked out of town. They travel. It's almost 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica. Verse 1 tells us they had a couple of stops along the way, but these were quick. They were just passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia. You look there on the, on the coast along what's called Macedonian scriptures, but on their way towards Athens, that's where they're heading, modern-day Greece. They're traveling along this distance. They weren't in a car. They weren't in a limousine. They definitely weren't traveling on a chartered airplane. Ministry back in these days, it was difficult. It was hard. They would have been in great physical pain. But I want you to notice back in verse number 2, it says, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them. We're talking about upside-down ministry today. And the first thing we see about upside-down ministry is that it is predictable. It's predictable. Paul always was doing the same thing as his manner was. He gets to the new city, and he follows the same process once again. He had a predictable manner. This morning, as we look at this passage in Acts 17, I'm going to be referring some to First and Second Thessalonians. These are letters that Paul later wrote to the church that was established in this city of Thessalonica that we're looking at today. So when I refer to that, it's to shed additional light on the ministry and on the work that Paul and Silas and these others were doing in Thessalonica. Paul wrote to this church later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you. Here's how we came in. That it was not in vain. He had a purpose. 
He had a plan and God was working through him. He says, but even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Paul says, we faced great opposition in Philippi, but we continued forward. This upside-down ministry that's predictable, it's predictable in its manner. Paul was not a quitter. If Paul and Silas, after Philippi, after being beaten up, after being thrown in prison, if they had packed their bags and headed back to Antioch, where they had left from, or even back to Jerusalem, where the church had been established, I don't think anybody would have said, and you guys just aren't very faithful. What's wrong with you? No, you said, well, of course, let's celebrate all that God did in Philippi. Let's celebrate the fact that Lydia came to Christ. Let's celebrate the fact that this young lady had her demon cast out. Let's celebrate the fact that the Philippian jailer and his whole family came to Christ. Oh, Paul and Silas, come home and rest for a while. But that's not what they did. They continued on. Their ministry, it was a predictable ministry because they continued faithful even in the face of great persecution. No one would have blamed them for coming home, but Paul had places that still needed to be visited because he knew there were people that needed to be reached with the gospel. The Great Commission says that we are to preach the gospel to every creature. It was predictable ministry. It was predictable ministry. Even after they suffered, they got up and they continued forward. Now, I want you to understand, too, this ministry in Thessalonica was not a short-lived ministry. They were here for quite a period of time. Now, if you read it in Acts 17, it's just nine verses, and then they're off to the next place. But we understand this better through looking at a couple of other places. One is found in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul is writing a letter back to the church at Philippi. That's where Lydia, the Philippian jailer, where these guys were. He writes to them and he says, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. He says, For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again to my necessity. So two different times while we were in Thessalonica, the people in Philippi sent money. They sent offerings to help Paul and Silas out. Now, can you imagine what that must have been like? Probably Lydia, some of these other ladies, maybe the Philippian jailer and his wife. Surely, maybe there were a few other believers by this time. They said, you know, Paul and Silas had it pretty rough here in Philippi. When they left us, they didn't look too good. They had black eyes. They were beat up. Their lip was bleeding. They were in pain. Clearly they would have been. I mean, they were the next day out of prison and pushed out of town on the road the next day, and they headed toward Thessalonica. We need to help them out. Let's take up a collection. And so they collected some money, and they somehow sent it to Paul and Silas. Maybe it was the Philippian jailer on his, way off, on his day off. He'd need a few days to travel 100 miles and back. But maybe he rode a horse and took, took a week off and took that offering. And it's a hard, hard way to transfer money back in those days. I mean, today we just like Venmo, you know, or cash, cash app, whatever. We just, we just send it and it's there. 
This took great effort for them even to send this offering, and they didn't just do it one time, they did it twice. That tells me they were probably in Thessalonica for a little while. Not only that, later when Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 7 through 10, he says, For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. What does he mean by this? He said, we worked really hard to provide for our own financial needs. Paul and Silas were there in Thessalonica for such an amount of time. Not only did they need offerings from Philippi to sustain them, they went out and they worked themselves laboring to earn their own living so that they wouldn't take from the people in Thessalonica. In fact, Paul says in verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 3, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. It's interesting that context is in the context of our ministry to the church at Thessalonica. You see, this ministry was a predictable ministry. It was a faithful ministry. It was hard work in the ministry. Sometimes I think we get this idea that somehow when I serve God, it's just going to get easier. But then we read our Bibles and we find that that is not true. Yes, heaven is our home, but we're not there yet. God put us here and He's given us a job to do. You see, their manner, it was predictable. It was faithful. It was willing to work hard to provide for their needs. And they did this over quite a period of time. We don't know for sure how long, but it was long enough that they needed help from outside, that they worked to provide for themselves. I would ask you in your life, when it comes to walking by faith and serving God, are you predictable? Are you faithful? I think for many people, their life looks more like a roller coaster. Some days I'm doing right and walking with God, and other days I'm doing whatever I want to do. How were these folks able to be faithful and predictable? We'll get to that more in a minute. But I would say for us today, are we faithful to worship God together? These are simple things that God has commanded us to do not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much the more as you see the day approaching, we ought to be together worshiping God together, serving the Lord together. During the week, are you faithful in the Word of God? Oh, Christian, don't be someone who is totally unfaithful in your walk with the Lord. You need time in God's Word throughout the week. If you can go a day or a week without the Word of God, it means you're walking in your own strength and not the Lord's. You cannot do it on your own. Jesus said it very simply. He said, without me, ye can do nothing. So look back at your last week. How many days did you do nothing? Look at the last month. How many days did you do nothing because you did it in your own strength? we don't even have time to read God's Word, if we don't have time to pray, we are literally doing nothing 
And I'm afraid too many believers. Yes, people who have trusted in Christ are going to stand before the Lord today someday and have nothing to show for it because they've done nothing for Him because they've been living in their own strength. Paul's ministry was a faithful, predictable ministry. Friend, this morning, let us not be guilty of doing nothing. And if we are, let's stop doing nothing and confess that to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to do something for you. Yes, I have to work and provide for my family. Yes, I've got to clean the house and take care of the children. Yes, I have to go here and do this and do that. But Lord, I'm committing to put you first. I'm going to seek you first in my time. Seek you first with my priorities. But too often, we're tempted to think, I can do this on my own. I can do this without the Lord. We're not doing anything if we're not doing it with Him. Say, well, look, I've done a lot. I've lived this far. Well, does it have any eternal value? Are you laying up treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt? Or are you just laying up treasure on this earth that will pass away? Yes, this world has lots of glitter and lots of allure, lots of things to be desired. It is pleasant for a season, but it will pass away. How predictable are you in your ministry? This is upside-down ministry. I understand it. This is not what feels good. This is not what comes naturally to us. This is not something we get up and go, yes, it feels so good to go contrary to the way of the world. But as we've been studying on Wednesday nights, we've been working through the Beatitudes that Jesus gave at the beginning of His Sermon on the Mount, these blessings, and He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. How is that a blessing? He says, blessed are the persecuted. Wait a minute. Jesus says something backwards here. That sounds upside down. The reason it sounds upside down is because we are human beings. We're flesh. And the things that feel normal or right to us in our flesh are exactly opposite to the way that God tells us to live as we walk in the Spirit. That's why we have to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Your flesh doesn't want to do right. You say, well, and I wish I could be like Paul. Listen, Paul's more like you than you know. He said in Romans Chapter 7, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I should be doing, I'm not doing. The things that I shouldn't be doing, that's what I find myself doing instead. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Anybody else feel like that? Yeah. It's a struggle. When we study through a book like Acts, and we see people like Paul and Silas serving God faithful, this predictable ministry. This wasn't because they were so awesome and we're not. They had the same struggles. Paul talks about in, in Corinthians about his thorn in the flesh. He said, I asked God three different times, Lord, take it from me. And God saw fit to leave it with him. And Paul said, therefore, I'm going to glory in my infirmities. He said, for when I am weak, then he is strong. You're weak. 
Guess what? So was Paul. You struggle. So did he. See, it's not about us comparing ourselves to him and saying, well, he's just better than us. I couldn't do it. No, it's about us realizing the way he was able to be faithful in ministry was by keeping his eyes on the Lord. The same way you can be faithful is by keeping your eyes on Christ. You're going to have temptations. You're going to have things pulling at you. You're going to feel sick, and you may be sick. You're going to feel tired, and you probably are. You may not have enough money. It's probably true. But you can't do this in your own strength. You have to walk with the Lord. You have to trust in Him. You say, how do you do that? Well, when you read God's Word, it starts by knowing what He says, right? Study to show yourself approved unto God. When you read God's Word and the Lord shows us something that is true, you say, okay, I'm going to do it. Lord, I'm going to have need your help to do it, but I'm going to do it. If you've showed it to me in your Word, then it's true, so I'm going to do it. Now you're going to have all these doubts. Ah, you can't do it. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not rich enough. You don't have time. You don't this. You're going to have all these reasons why you can't do it. And that's where it becomes a matter of faith. You're going to trust the Lord and do what He says, or you're going to trust your feelings and your experience and your way of looking at things and saying, well, I can't. And that's where the rubber meets the road for us. And that's a daily battle. Paul wrote about this too. He said, I have to die to my flesh every single day. He said, I die daily. Say, oh, that doesn't sound nice. No, it's not. Because our flesh every day gets up and is ready to try to do something in its own strength. And we have to say, no flesh. I'm going to walk in his strength, not in yours. He had a predictable manner. Secondly, we see he had a predictable message. A predictable message. What was his message? Well, it says in verse 2, he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Verse 3, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. What a message. So Paul is ministering in the synagogue. The synagogue was the place where the Jewish people, the followers of the Jewish religion would gather to read the Old Testament and to pray. The problem with the Jews in the synagogue is most of them were following this Old Testament pattern and they either didn't know or hadn't believed that Jesus Christ had come as the fulfillment to all those Old Testament prophecies of a Messiah, that Jesus had lived, that He died, and that He rose again. And so Paul went into the synagogue because he was, after all, a Jew. He was a religious leader among the Jews. He was a Pharisee, and he knew his Old Testament very well. And he showed them from those Old Testament prophecies and through Jesus Christ's works and message that Jesus Christ really was the Messiah and that they could trust in him. His message was predictable. He reasoned from the Scripture. Paul wrote later to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. He said, For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of truth, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men. But as it is in truth, the word of God. He shared with them the truth, the word of God. 
which effectually worketh also in you that believe. You see, we live in a day where God's Word is questioned. People say, I'm not sure if it's really the Word of God. Maybe there's errors in it. Maybe there's problems with it. See, the God uh, who gives us all truth would never inspire error. Every Word of God is true. Paul laid out this proof from the Old Testament prophets and the works and message of Christ. But not all the Jews believed. Some of them did. See, when you present the truth, like we looked at Hebrews, it's the Word of God is quick and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. What does a sword do? It cuts. And when the truth comes into your life through the Word of God or through hearing a message from the Word of God and that truth begins to do its work of cutting in your heart, when something cuts, things are going to fall to one side of the blade and to the other side of the blade, right? Truth that, that cut has a way of revealing things in our lives, of opening things up and pushing things to one side or the other. Think of a blade moving through. You're either going to be on the right side or the left side of that blade when it finishes its cut, if it's a sharp blade. And it is a very sharp blade. It pierces, as the Scripture says, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, that it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. That's a sharp blade. That is truth. It gets down into your heart because the reality is we're really good at faking things, right? We can pretend like we're doing really well. How you doing? Fine. Liar. Right? You're not fine. How's everything going? Good. No, it's not. Well, why do we say that? But see, when we hear the truth and, and we begin to read the Word of God, God's Word cuts through those words like fine and good and I'm okay and everything's all right. Yeah, things are great. And it, and it cuts down not just through our actions, but even into our intents, our desires, our motivations, the things that really make up who we are. That's why we need to constantly be in front of and around and being challenged by truth. But I understand, listen, it's kind of a painful process. It's easier sometimes to not know the truth, right? People are like, I'd just rather not know. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've driven down a street and you've seen some people over in a corner doing something. You're like, I'd rather not know what they're doing. I'm just going to keep driving. Why? Because the truth is painful sometimes. This has happened in your house probably. Heard a big noise upstairs. I don't even want to know what happened, but it better be fixed before I get up there, right? Sometimes the truth is painful. And the reality is, I think for many people, we don't even want to know the truth about our own hearts and our own wickedness and our own consequences for our sin because sometimes it's just easier not to know. So when Paul presented the truth, when he reasoned to them from Scripture, some believed, some didn't. Some said, okay, I will trust in Jesus. Some said, no, I'm going to hold on to what I know. My traditions, my religion... The things my grandparents taught me, that's what I'm going to do. So my friend, this morning, when you hear the truth, what do you do with it? Do you ignore it? Do you push it away? Do you say, nope, I'm going to stand on what I think? Or are you going to say, no, I'm going to trust what God has said? We have the truth. God's Word convicts us, but it also 
cleans us. Jesus said in John 15 and verse 3, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. When you think of the idea of convicting or cutting, that sounds painful. Because it is. It's going to be messy and yucky. It can be. But the other wonderful thing about the Word of God, it also comes through and it, it cleans us. It washes us. It helps to cut out the impurities and the mess and to present us as a beautiful vessel useful for His work. And then He brings His Holy Spirit in like, like an oil, like a healing balm that comes in and says, it's okay. I'm with you. I'm here to help you. I know you're weak, but when you're weak, that's when I'm strong. That word is true. Paul had a predictable message. We have a wonderful message to share, don't we? He reasoned with them from Scripture, and he preached the gospel. That's what it says at the end of verse 3, that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. You say, it just sounds like he's saying names. Christ is the word that means Messiah, the promised one. He was the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. For the Jew, they understood this reference. It goes all the way back to the time of the Passover and the time of Egypt when that 10th plague was coming and the Lord said, you have to take a lamb and you got to take its blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the door up above and on the sides of the door and when the death angel sees the blood of that lamb, he will pass over that house. And see, that lamb was a picture of the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world so that if you will receive the blood of Jesus Christ as payment for or as an atonement for your sin, you too can have eternal life. This morning, the Bible is very clear. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So I haven't sinned as much as the next person. Maybe true. But you've still come short of the glory of God. Because of sin, the Bible says the wages of our sin is death. It's not a pretty picture. It's ugly. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's offering you a gift. He allowed His Son, Jesus Christ, to be made sin for you and for me, for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He took something that was perfect, His Son, Jesus Christ, and allowed it to be broken, bruised, wounded, for our transgressions so that if you would trust in Him, saying, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Lord, forgive me. I'm trusting in You. You can have the perfect righteousness, the spotless perfection of Jesus Christ applied to your sin account. And instead of looking at you and seeing your sin, instead He would look at that account and say, paid in full. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ. And some believe. He had a predictable message. Upside down ministry has a predictable message. 
secondly this morning, and that was my big point, so I'll move a little bit quicker now. Don't worry, we won't be here all day. Number two, an upside-down ministry may experience persecution. Look at verse number five quickly here. It says, But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jacob, and sought to bring them out to the people. Trials and assault continue to be a part of the missionary experience. These lewd fellows mentioned, these were basically thugs that were brought in, that were just hired to intimidate and to stir up the crowd to tell lies about them. The city was in an uproar and the Christians were blamed for the problem. You know, Nero blamed Christians when Rome burned down. John Knox was killed for working to make sure that every plowboy in England would have a copy of the scriptures in his own language. John Bunyan was put in prison because he wouldn't stop preaching the truth. You see, an upside-down ministry may experience persecution. We see why here in the passage. First of all, because of unbelief. Verse 5, but the Jews which believed not. Maybe you've heard the name Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor here in the United States back in the 1700s. He pastored the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And he was one of the leading pastors of the First Great Awakening. He preached a sermon that is still known to this day called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And through his presentation of the gospel, many people trusted Christ and revival began to spread across the land. People began to trust in Jesus as their Savior. You see, at this time, the churches were full of people who looked good on the outside, but they'd never trusted in Christ. And it wasn't too long after that all took place that Jonathan Edwards, with a burden to make sure that the members of his church were actually believers in Jesus Christ. And he began to ask, are you sure that you're saved? Are you sure that you're on your way to heaven? Are you sure that you have Christ, that people got offended by that. The members of his own church. There was enough powerful people in that church that before long they worked and they threw up a big uproar and they got him dismissed as the pastor of the church that he had made famous because of the beginning of the Great Awakening. That's a story we don't always hear. But it's true. You would think the church where this great revival came out of, that the people would say, what a great place. But instead, they kicked their pastor out because he had the audacity to ask them whether or not they knew the Lord as their Savior. People get offended by things like that, don't they? Especially when they don't know the Lord as their Savior. And, and because of this, he ended up taking the pastorate of a small church in a frontier town called Stockbridge. Now, quite a bit later, some of his most vocal opponents later came to Christ and they publicly confessed their sin towards Jonathan Edwards and attacking him. And ultimately, he was then hired as the third president of Princeton University. 
You see, there's persecution that comes because of unbelief. When people don't believe in Christ, when they don't believe the Bible, they push back. Why? Because the truth is painful. Even if you reject it. And sometimes that's why people reject it, because they don't want to deal with the realities of their heart. We see it rejected. We see persecution because of unbelief. We also see it goes on, it says, because of envy. But the Jews which believed not moved with envy. They were full of jealousy. The religious leaders hated Paul's message. And they also hated the fact that people were coming to the gospel in large numbers. They didn't like that. And so they, they wanted to stop this. Much of the persecution that Paul suffered would probably have been avoided if he just hadn't had any success, if he'd been a failure. It was his success that sparked his critics' envy and rage. The devil doesn't like it when you're punching holes in darkness to let in the light of Christ. If we don't want persecution, then we should just not do anything for Christ. It'd be easier. Maybe. I don't think it'd be easier in the long run. Because someday, if you're a believer in Christ, you and I are going to stand before the Lord and give an account for how we've served Him. But is it really worth it? This really sounds upside down, doesn't it? There's an unpopular message that's leading to persecution. Sounds really upside down. So I want you to notice finally, while we see that upside down ministry has a predictable message, it's a predictable ministry, it will probably include persecution. We can also see here in verse 6 through 9 that an upside down ministry is powerful. There's great power in the name of Jesus. There's great power for doing a work in somebody's life. Verse 6, and when they found them not, they tried to go down to Jason's house and find Paul and Silas, but they couldn't find them. They drew Jason and certain brethren into the rulers of the city, crying, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. I'd just like to say that if turning the world upside down means turning people to follow Christ, then turning the world upside down is a really good thing. If people get offended by somebody trying to point people to Christ, then let them be offended. We shouldn't do it in a manner that's offensive. But the message may be offensive to some. Speak the truth, as Ephesians says, in love. This upside-down ministry was powerful. It was powerful in its reputation. It's interesting that this ministry had taken place long enough in Thessalonica that the people there understood the reputation of those who were preaching the gospel so much to the point that they said, they're turning the world upside down. Nobody's ever said that about me. But what a great compliment. They were being, they had this reputation of those who brought about change through the transformative power of the gospel. They were paying respect, albeit grudging expect, respect, to the power of the gospel and the effectiveness of this work. 
The work of God was so powerful that no matter what persecution or opposition the enemies brought against it, it still continued to thrive and grow. Aren't you thankful for the power that God has to transform lives? It's amazing because sometimes we think that it'll only happen as long as we're here to do it. No, the gospel has power to work even long after we're gone. Because it's not our work, it's His work. It's not just our message, it's His message. It's not just in our strength, it's through Him, it's in His strength. This message, this ministry had great power in its reputation, also in its association. Verse 7 says, Whom Jason hath received. Jason brought these people in. What happened to Jason that now he's willing to receive Paul and Silas? I'll tell you what happened. He was changed through the power of this message. Prior to this, Jason would have been with the crowd wanting to assault Paul and Silas. But now he's standing with Paul and Silas. What happened in Jason's associations? He received Christ. I think about that when we gather here on a Sunday morning. What should be the thing that brings us here? It's not because we all look the same. It's not because we all went to the same school. Because we all cheer for the same sports team. Or because of anything else other than the gospel. That's the glue that holds us together. And our desire to serve the Lord and worship together and encourage one another. Now, I understand People come to churches for a lot of different reasons beyond that. I'm looking for a church that checks these boxes and that boxes. I'm not saying there are other things that don't matter. What I'm saying is, though, the main thing should be the message, the ministry of the gospel that God has given to us to reach this lost and dying world with. Should we help and minister in the community? Yes, and we do. Should we help? People are poor and sick, people that are hungry. Yes, Jesus did. Jesus also gave them the gospel. If we don't give them the gospel, then we're not doing something that can change their life forever. We might be giving them a fish, right, and feed them for a day. But we're not teaching them where they can go to find the hope and the answers and the truth that will carry them forward and give them an eternal home with the Lord. We see the power of the ministry in its reputation, in its association, and finally in its transformation. It says in verse 7, when Jason, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. What a claim. Now Jesus was not teaching people to be uh, political ideologues. He wasn't teaching people to fight against the government. No, in fact, when questioned, Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Pay your taxes. Be a good citizen. Pray for your leaders. Honor your authority. Those are all things we must be doing as believers. They were accused of trying to foment an insurrection against Caesar. They weren't doing that. They were just saying, we serve Jesus. 
but that bothered them. It brought a great transformation in Jason's life. Now he's not fighting back. Now he is hosting Paul and Silas in his home. Now he, look at verse 9, when they'd taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. Now Jason is paying money, probably paying a fine, a security deposit that was levied upon him and these other church leaders because of the ministry of Paul and Silas. That's pretty incredible. Jason's priorities have changed. He's now standing with the people that would turn the world upside down. He's now hosting them in his house. Jason, I think, is very similar in his ministry to the way that Lydia was in Philippi. Lydia was the woman who brought them into her home. She was the woman where they gathered together in her place to worship the Lord. Now it seems as if Jason is that same individual in the church at Thessalonica. What happened to Jason? He was transformed through the power of the gospel. In fact, Paul even talked about this situation where Jason had to pay money and, and to make sure that they wouldn't come back and cause problems anymore. Paul wrote about this in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. He said, Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul. I wanted to come back once and again, but Satan hindered us. I couldn't get there. The people wouldn't let us in. You know, it's possible, in fact, that Jason later even sold his home in Thessalonica and moved to serve with Paul in Rome. Paul mentions him one more time in Romans chapter 16, verse 21. He says, Timotheus, Timothy, my work fellow, and Luke, and Jason, my kinsmen, salute you. He said, we're serving together. Man, Jason's life has been changed. He leaves his home. He, he sells his house. He pays this fine. He's standing with Paul. What happened? He'd been transformed through the gospel. What can God do to transform your life through the gospel? What has God done to transform your life through the gospel? In the scripture, he says that old things become new. He says that people have passed from death into life. See, the gospel will transform your eternal destination. The gospel will also transform your present priorities, how you spend your time, your money, your energy. What is your priority? What's important to you? It transforms everything. upside-down ministry. It seems backwards. It doesn't seem to make sense to our flesh, to this world. They were even accused of this upside-down ministry as causing great problems in the culture. And it did. It threatened the culture because the culture was in sin. People were in sin. We already talked about it. I just want to remind you in closing, Paul and Silas weren't somehow superstar Christians. They were just people too. We've already looked at some of Paul's shortcomings in earlier chapters in the book of Acts. 
this ministry that God's called you to and you to and God's called all of us to, it does cut contrary to the ways of this world. It's not always comfortable. I think for us in America, we especially struggle with this because we've enjoyed so much peace and comfort in our country for so long. I'm thankful for that. But as I talk to Christians in other parts of the world, I was talking to somebody just recently, they said, well, when we choose to go to church, we just have to kind of keep it a, a quiet thing. We, don't, we can't make a big thing because we'll get into a lot of trouble where we live. I don't think any of us were really worried about getting in trouble to come here this morning. And I said, well, I didn't get to sleep as long as I wanted to. Or I didn't have as much time at breakfast. Or I wish Pastor would get done so I could get to lunch. Right? Those are the li kind of the limits for a lot of us when it comes to our trouble. I know some of you had physical trouble getting here. You're in pain. You're sick. You're going through things. I get all that. Those are hard things. Those are real things. But when we live out this ministry that God has given us, while it may feel difficult at times, it can be done with the Lord's help. As we look at this world around us, as you look at your friends and you look at the people that you work with, they're going a different direction if they're not following the Lord. And that's why it feels like your choices seem very different than theirs when you choose to follow the Lord. That's why it seems upside down to the people around you. Now, you may be here this morning, and this whole message sounds like it's upside down and backwards. And I would invite you, just like Paul invited those people in Thessalonica, to trust in Christ today as your Savior. Because I can guarantee you there's a whole bunch of people in this room that could all stand up, and I won't make them do it this morning, but they could stand up and give you a testimony of the time when they used to be going in a different direction. When they were doing things that were wrong, when they were doing things that didn't bring peace and joy and fulfillment in their life. And now they're here saying, well, they, they've clearly changed. Well, what happened? The gospel transformed their life. Sometimes, though, and I want to say this too as well, we get to a point in our lives where we feel like, well, serving God is just hard and difficult. I want to remind you, not serving God is hard and difficult too. The devil's really good at trying to make it look like, well, when you serve God, it's going to be tough. It's persecuted. It's so painful. It's so difficult. Guess what? People that don't serve God get sick too. People that are not believers in Christ lose their jobs too. People that don't walk with the Lord go through all kinds of hardship. The difference is they don't have the Lord walking with them in the struggle. And you do. But I get it. I'm, I'm probably just like the next person. That There are times when things are challenging in my own life and I look around and I go, is it really worth it? I think it would just be easier if I just stopped doing all this. This is hard. This is challenging. This is wearisome. But I want to remind you where we started. Life is hard. Choose your heart. Walk through it with God or walk through it on your own. I'm going to choose to walk with the Lord. Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he 
God's rest on us. People that are not walking with the Lord aren't, oh, life's easy. They may make it look easy. Their life's hard too. And their eternity is going to be really hard. If you're walking with Christ this morning, your life may be challenging. And it may even get more challenging. But your eternal destination is secure. And I would invite anybody that doesn't know that Christ as their Savior to come and trust Him today. Humble yourself. Just tell Him what you've done wrong. We've all sinned. And ask Him to forgive you. And He will. Don't let your pride, your envy, as it did for these people, keep you from trusting in the Lord this morning. It's easy for people to say, well, you just don't understand. I may not, but God does. God's truth is real. It's right. Trust and obey it today. Lord, help us. Help us to follow you in obedience to your word. This ministry that you've called the believer to is an upside-down kind of ministry. It seems to cut against the grain and go against the current of this world and the systems around us. But Lord, it's not a life without joy and without blessing. In fact, you told us in your word that we are to be careful for nothing, not be worried about things, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to let our requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Lord, we need your peace this morning. We need your strength, as Paul said, in my weakness, that his, his strength is made perfect. Lord, we need your strength this morning. We need your help. As Jesus said, without me, ye can do nothing. Lord, I'm concerned that many a Christian will stand before you someday with nothing to show because they've lived their life in their own strength. Lord, convict each heart this morning of that necessity of trusting in you. May they respond in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.